I had great intentions this morning to begin our series on money, riches, wealth, greed, generosity, called Kingdom Economics. I had great intentions of beginning that this morning, and yet, and yet, I wanted to pause and I wanted to revisit something that's very important to the health of our church. Because I think about this all the time, you know. You, you hired me to think about this all the time, namely church health. What it is that makes a church healthy and strong. What it is that makes a church truly effective for the Great Commission. You asked me to, to move here and to consider what it is, how to make a church cause ripple effects for eternity, to which we were glad to do and move halfway across the country and spend my time thinking about those kinds of things. What that also means is that I also spend uh, a lot of time thinking about things that seem like they're healthy on the surface but aren't actually the case. Which raises the question, right? How do you, how do you know? How can you tell? How can you tell the difference between something that seems healthy for a church on the one hand but might not actually be the case? How can you tell the difference between a busy and exciting church on the one hand and a truly healthy church on the other? Now, don't misunderstand when I say that. I'm not saying that healthy churches are boring. It's the exact opposite is the case. They should be bustling and thriving in activity. I'm just saying that busy and healthy aren't always necessarily always the same thing. I want you to consider the kinds of things that we just automatically assume means a healthy church, but might not actually be the case. For instance, a full parking lot and lots of people. That's a good sign, right? Energy, excitement, and feelings of momentum. What's wrong with that? A big church with lots of money, tons of resources. Who doesn't want that? A vibrant program, stuff for my kids. Not a thing wrong with that. Community involvement, that's a great idea. A dynamic speaker who inspires people, makes you feel encouraged, brings in the masses, who doesn't want that? A church that supports lots of missionaries, and finally, get this, a friendly community that makes you feel welcomed and loved when you arrived. Now, if you hear, those are all good things. All good things. And if you're a healthy church, you'll probably have most of those things, but... Believe me when I say that tons of programs, lots of energy, community involvement, and being a friendly church doesn't necessarily mean that that church is a healthy church. I mean, maybe, maybe not. So maybe you're thinking, okay, wise guy. If those things don't necessarily indicate true, authentic church health, then what is it exactly that displays, evidences a healthy church? What are the signs that a church is truly a healthy church, or at least that a church is on its way to becoming a healthy church? And that's a superb question. I'm glad you asked, and three things are the answer. Number one, a commitment to proclaim God's word in every ministry. Number two, qualified elders who shepherd the flock and equip the saints. Number three, when every member in the church cares for one another's spiritual growth as their top priority. That's good, that's good church. That's a healthy church. 
that right there is a church that changes the world. And you have to understand, it's that third item on the list that we have got to have a conversation about this morning. Because it's that third item on the list, caring for one another, spiritual growth as our top priority. That's a really, really big deal in the Bible. And we have a name for those kinds of relationships here at Christ Community, and they're called redemptive relationships. Redemptive relationships. And what that means, how to do it, what it looks like, how to actually make that a reality, we're going to get to that. But you see, the whole reason why we're talking about this is because every year we revisit our mission, our purpose, our goals, our aims, our objectives as a church. You know that we have a mission statement. We have seven non-negotiable commitments. We have what we call a 20-year plan to change the world. We have these really ambitious plans for what we want to be and do as a church, and yet I'm just being honest with you, none of that, none of that is ever going to happen if we don't get under our belts what it means to have authentic biblical relationships in the context of the local church. Because you see, this is the hardest part. This is what takes that ecclesiological elbow grease in a local church, because running some programs, that's easy. Throwing some money at a, at a building fund or a building program, anyone can do that. We could do some dog and pony show to try to get people to accept something and get the masses into the seat. But at the end of the day, authentic church health is profoundly dependent upon our relationships to one another. Because you understand our relationships to one another are not merely to be civil, but supernatural. It's not just being friendly to one another. It is the one another's to and for one another as we press on together in Christ-like maturity and growth. So this morning, what you're going to get, although my preference is an exposition of a single text, what you're going to get this morning is a theology. A theology of what authentic biblical relationships are supposed to look like in the local church, which we call redemptive relationships, and these are not easy. In fact, they are impossible without supernatural power, but they are absolutely necessary to have and be a healthy church, and they are worth all the pain and sacrifice it takes to have them. So here we go. If you have your notes, even if you don't have them, this is where we're going. This morning, I want you to see from the Bible four features of redemptive relationships. Four features of redemptive relationships required to make Christ's community a haven of souls pursuing Christ together in a mission. That's kind of long. I'll say it again. Four features of redemptive relationships required, required to make Christ's community a haven of souls pursuing Christ in a mission together. And the first feature of redemptive relationships is this, number one, a definition of redemptive relationships. A definition of redemptive relationships because the first order of business that we have got to get to the bottom of is what are you even talking about redemptive relationships? Jared, I've never even heard of redemptive relationships before. And I think you have. I think you have because this is nothing new. This is as old as the Bible itself because where this comes from is the Bible itself. You see, what we mean by this, what we mean, what we define as redemptive relationships is simply a summary way to describe all that the Bible says our relationships should be like in the local church. 
And what exactly should our relationships be in the local church? And you know exactly what they should be because the Bible gives at least 59 descriptions of what they should be like. Pray for one another. Speak the truth to one another. Exhort one another. Encourage one another. Comfort one another. Teach one another. Admonish one another. Rebuke one another. Love one another. Instruct one another. Serve one another. Confess your sins to one another. Bear one another's burdens be devoted to one another in brotherly love, and on and on and on it goes. The New Testament, you understand, is profoundly concerned that our relationships with one another are intentional, proactive efforts to invest the Word of God into one another's lives, that your spiritual growth is my priority, my spiritual growth is your priority. So let's open the box. Well, let's, let's see what we mean when we're talking about redemptive relationships. Because in that phrase, you can hear the word redemption, can't you? And redemption, you understand, that's a juicy theological word that describes all that Christ is and accomplished for the people for whom he died. That word literally is a pantry packed full of spiritual blessings that Christ purchased for the elect, which includes not only forgiveness for the sins of the past, but also all of the spiritual power we need to put sin to death and to put him on display in our lives. That is redemption. Which is here's where relationships come into play. But you understand this is very important is that one of the means through which the power of Christ in real time becomes experienced in our lives is precisely in our relationships with one another. You understand, our relationships with one another are a channel, are a means, are a two-way circuit by which Christ supplies to our souls all of the Adam-charged Adam hope and power and grace we need to put his glory on open display. But you see, we are the means to one another's spiritual growth and health and sanctification. I don't get holy without you, and you don't get holy without me. So here's my definition of redemptive relationships. It is long, multiple sentences. Don't even try to write it down, but if you have your notes, it's actually in the notes. Here's what we mean by redemptive relationships. Redemptive relationships are simply people in need of change, helping people in need of change. They are built on the biblical premise that members of the body are connected in Christ. And get this, we are agents of one another's spiritual growth. Each one mutually dependent upon the other. Therefore, redemptive relationships, here it is, exist to mediate the life-transforming power of Jesus Christ into one another's lives through the word. That's a redemptive relationship. To mediate the life-transforming power of Jesus Christ into one another's lives through the word. In other words, all this is, is us making tangible to one another the most beautiful and glorious person in the universe, namely Jesus Christ himself. That's a redemptive relationship, that my spiritual growth is your ambition, your spiritual growth is my ambition. 
And maybe you're thinking, and you should be thinking this, okay, well, where is that in the Bible? Is that even in the Bible? You better believe it is, big time. For instance, for instance, I think this is revealed not just in the one another's, which I think proves the entire case that I'm making, but also in passages like Colossians 1, verse 28. I believe it's in your notes, but listen to Colossians 1, 28. Listen to what Paul says. He says, we proclaim Christ, admonishing every person and teaching every person with all wisdom. Why? For what purpose? What is his aim in teaching and imparting the word of God to others? We do this, he says, here it is, so that we may present every person complete, mature in Christ. Do you hear it? What did Paul say should be our overriding concern in our relationships with others? What did he say should be our loving ulterior motive in all of our relationships with one another? Did you see it? He said, we do this so that we may present every person complete, mature in Christ. That's the goal. That's the aim. That's the intention. That is the, that is the aim. That is our design for one another to help present one another complete, mature in Christ. And that sounds great, but what does that mean? It means that our aim and desire for one another is not to squeeze out of you what I can get for me, but to mobilize all my energies to help you grow in maturity in Christ, to be more like Christ, to trust Christ more, to depend on Christ more, to love Christ more, to be captivated by Christ more today than you were the day before. That is my goal for you. That is your goal for me. See, all we're doing here, when we're talking about redemptive relationships, all we're talking about is that in every situation, every event, every circumstance, every conversation, we are mediating and displaying whatever it is about Christ that anyone needs at any particular time moment. That's it. Which sounds awesome. How does that happen? How is that supposed to work? How, how do you mediate and portray the life-transforming power of Jesus Christ? I mean, how do you be an agent that does that? And Paul just told us, didn't he? We proclaim him, teaching every man, admonishing every man, with all wisdom. There it is. That's how. See, all we're doing, all we are doing in and for and to one another is connecting people to the life-transforming power of Jesus Christ through the word. Our speaking, our ministry, our encouragements from the word. And what that requires, and you can smell it, can't you? What that requires is something beneath the surface something beyond the mundane. Over time, the willingness to engage one another at a heart level of love and authenticity in our interactions with one another. The question is, the question is, are you willing to go there? Are you willing to go there in your relationships with one another? Are you willing to be invested in this church to the degree that you feel the weight of one another's spiritual health and growth as your own? 
Now that's, that's not easy. This is hard. This is supernatural. This is so much more than keeping a safe and friendly distance. I mean, this is literally, literally the ownership of one another's health and growth, which means we are willing to walk with one another down the deepest, darkest paths of our lives. Because when a church does that, they begin to grow. Look at Ephesians 4, 15 and 16. Also, I believe in your notes, Ephesians 4, 15 and 16. In the context of how a church should function, listen to what Paul says. He says, but speaking the truth in love, what happens when we do that? What happens when we speak the truth in love? He says, we grow up in him. There it is. Speak the word, get mature. We grow up in him in all things. Who is the head? That is Christ. Notice what he says. It's all one sentence in the Greek. This is incredible. From whom the whole body being fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. He failed in grammar, but he got an A plus in ecclesiology. Did you hear what he said there? It's incredible. Verse 15, in all aspects, in every way, we are to grow up in Christ, Christ exalting health and growth and maturity. We become more like Jesus, in other words. We increasingly resemble and reflect the beauty and the glory and the worth and the value of Jesus Christ. And the way that happens is, in our relationships, okay, but how do we do that? How does that happen? How do we begin to function as a church like that? And Paul already told us, speaking the truth in love to one another, we grow. That's how. And by truth, he means truth. Biblical truth and content. He means literal Bible verses. He's talking about the healing balm of the word of God. Don't you see? We are the means. Our intentional, loving, humble, truth-filled comforts and encouragements, and yes, even corrections to one another, is the means to us growing up and resembling and reflecting the Lord Jesus Christ. Does, does that make sense? It's incredible. And when we do that for one another, what happens? What did Paul say happens when we speak the truth in love to one another? Verse 16, the body of Christ functions exactly the way it should. Needs get met, souls get cured, people feel loved, churches get strong. Because we tend to think, don't we? We tend to think that the church is built only on one man. Namely, the guy in the pulpit. And that's true. The church is built on one man, the God-man, Jesus Christ. And our ministry, in fact, the most important ministry of our lives is to speak the word, the ministry to one another, the life-transforming power of Jesus Christ through the word. So practically, what does this mean? What, what, what could this potentially look like? Well, this doesn't mean, this doesn't mean that you have to be everybody's best friend Right? It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that we can't be closer to some people than we will be to others. I mean, the natural rhythms of life will not naturally direct you to the paths of other people than it 
people than it will to others, and that's okay. No one's talking about anything, forcing anything weird or bizarre or synthetic here. No one's talking about that. All I'm saying is, listen carefully, the church is so much more than a Sunday meeting and running some programs. You know why? Because what this is, what we're doing here, this is a recovery room of ransomed sinners and recovering idolaters. And we are one another's physicians and patients. I'm your physician and your patient. You're my physician and my patient. And we don't get well without applying to one another the ministry, the medicine of the word of God. That is a redemptive relationship. Which brings to the second feature of redemptive relationships. The second feature of redemptive relationships, number two, the necessity of redemptive relationships. The necessity of redemptive relationships, which I all but said, right? We really need this. We really need these. We need, get this now, we need the mutual infusion of grace and hope from one another to one another as we pursue Christ together in the context of the local church. The question is, why do we need these? Well, we think about it, I think there are two reasons why we need these kinds of relationships with one another. Two reasons why we need redemptive relationships. These, I think, are in your notes. Number one, we need redemptive relationships first because the, cor- because the corruption of the human heart on its own will drift away from Christ. Isn't that true? That the corruption of the human heart on its own, we will drift away from Christ. And the second reason why we need redemptive relationships is because of the coming totalitarianism and persecution that's headed for the church. Which means we're not playing games when we talk about redemptive relationships. So, first, the the corruption, the corruption of the human heart demands that we have redemptive relationships. Just demands. I mean, the Bible is absolutely clear. This is very important that the maintaining of our faith and of our holiness and our perseverance in our faith firm until the end is a community service project. I don't get to heaven without you. You understand that, right? It's in Hebrews 3, 12 through 14. My favorite, my favorite one another passage. It says, take care, brothers, lest there should be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But rather, exhort one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, lest you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if, if we hold fast our assurance firm until the end. And you see how we hold fast firm our assurance, how we hold fast to Christ and persevere to the end is through the word-centered counsels and encouragements and exhortations and care to one another with the word. That's the connection. Because what most of us do not realize, myself especially, is that when we entered into the Christian life at our conversion, that we were literally entering into a war zone. Did you know that? I didn't. I had no idea that all the peace and joy that people talked about when they became a Christian, although true and authentic, nevertheless, was happening while bombs were exploding 
and bullets flying over their heads. Most believers like me, for instance, casually walked on to the battlefield of the Christian life in their bathrobes, newspapers under their arms, coffee cups in their hands, terribly unprepared for the life-destroying dangers and temptations that were there waiting for them when they got to the battlefield. And you have seen enough destroyed marriages and divorces and adulteries and ruined churches and kids who go apostate in the church to know that I am not exaggerating, am I? This is a war zone. You see, where we go wrong in the Christian life is that we underestimate the power of sin and we under-overestimate our power to resist sin. Did I get that right? We underestimate the power of sin. We overestimate our power to resist sin. Which is precisely why the local church exists. Not to tickle our fancy or cater to our preferences, but rather, get this, to be a battalion of souls partnering together in the trenches of life, exhorting one another as long as it is still called today, lest you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So we need this. We need redemptive relationships. Honest, vulnerable, forthright, truth-filled relationships where we just live. We just live with the understanding that you and I possess the most dangerous and destructive instrument on the planet called the human heart. And it is so dangerous and deceptive that if left to ourselves, we will drift into the shark-filled ocean of sin and destruction. The second reason why we need redemptive relationships is because, as I mentioned, the coming totalitarianism and persecution that's headed for the church. You know, I mentioned this before. I, I didn't realize that when I first flirted with the idea of becoming a pastor at the age of 22, I had no idea that one of my job descriptions would be to prepare my people to face persecution. I didn't know that. The terrified though I am of pain and persecution that I would have to stand up and tell my people what the apostles told their people in Acts 14, 22, through many tribulations we must enter into the kingdom of God. That all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You understand, I've said this before, that the waves of persecution have been at low tide in America for centuries. While our comrades in other countries get beheaded for their allegiance to Christ, you see, that is normal. This is abnormal. This is the exception. We've had it so easy here in this Disneyland of Christianity, but mark my words, the gates of comfort and security are closing in America, and they are closing fast. Because when I say coming totalitarianism, it's going to sound a little conspiracy theorist, perhaps, but I mean that it seems that we are at the beginning stages of what eventually became the Soviet Union. Or what is right now communist China. We're on our way. I mean, maybe not. Anything can happen. But as I 
keep my ear to the tracks of perceptive cultural analysts. They feel that America has hit a tipping point where we are now on the downward slope of destruction because we live in a culture in which truth doesn't actually mean anything. And when truth is absent, the question no longer is what is good and right and beautiful and true. The question is, who has the power and who has the biggest guns? That's what's true. See, what we have here, what we have in our hands is this increasingly secular and hopeless society meeting at the same time humanity's need for meaning and purpose. Do you see that? Which is really scary because those without hope are the easiest to control. And those who have the control have all the power. And under the guise of gentleness and concern for the marginalized, the social justice movement is quickly becoming the creed of the day. Which doesn't sound bad. Justice is a good thing. Justice is a great thing. Except, except when it means that the Christian worldview is blamed as the predominant cause of sorrow, suffering, and oppression in the world, and therefore it must be eradicated. And if you don't fall in line with the majority and say what they want you to say, and chant what they want you to chant, and wear what they want you to wear, Mark my words, you will suffer the consequences. And you see, you might be thinking, okay, what does any of that have to do with redemptive relationships? It has everything to do with redemptive relationships. It has everything to do with him. Because, because it's precisely these kinds of relationships, get this, that are the support system for how we persevere in our faith and not cave under the pressure to conform. When the Soviet Union crumbled to the ground... And the dust settled and the smoke clear. To our surprise, what we saw on the other side of the fallen iron curtain was a church. Scarred and underground, not without its problems, but a church nevertheless. Our comrades in Russia did what our comrades in the Czech Republic didn't do. They not only stood strong in their faith, but they persevered together as a church. They not only were willing to defend their, the truth with their lives, but they had a passion to care for one another's souls. You see, our comrades in Russia understood that strength is found in a flock. They understood that if we isolate ourselves, if we isolate ourselves from the body of Christ, we jeopardize our very souls and the souls of our children and the souls of our grandchildren which is why the Czech Republic is 86% atheist today. The only question is, are you willing to have those kinds of relationships? Are you willing? Are you willing to take proactive ownership of one another's spiritual health and growth? Are you willing to open up to people and let them know how you're really actually doing in your pursuit of Christ? And are you willing to recruit them to help you in your pursuit of Christ? Because I know, I know this sounds scary. Because maybe you think, okay, well, what if I open up? I mean, what if I open up and I really share what's going on with my life? And what if I'm honest about my marriage and my kids 
my thoughts, my struggles, my burdens, my, my temptations? What if I do that and I get judged? Get betrayed, slandered, misrepresented, ignored, neglected? What if I'm the only one being honest and I can tell everyone else is just being shallow and, and inauthentic? What if that happens? And that's a very distinct possibility. All of that is a possibility for you, right? Because you're a part of a church at which people struggle just like you. That's a distinct possibility. But to that fear, I have three responses. Three responses to, to that kind of fear. Number one, relationships are clumsy and messy, right? They are clumsy and messy, but according to the Bible, they are a mess worth making because it's precisely in the hurt and the pain that the grace of Jesus Christ shines the most. Second response, hiding and protecting yourself from potential harm or harm that has happened in the past is not the biblical answer. It's not, it's not the biblical answer, answer to, to hide yourself from potential pain that's going to come. Now, that's not to deny, deny that something really did hurt, hurtful did happen to you. I'm not, I'm not denying your experience. I'm just saying that you will never heal nor grow, nor can you help others heal and grow until we all learn to be raw and honest and vulnerable with one another with the deepest sins and needs of our lives. Number three, third response you might very well remember that Christ himself was hurt, abandoned, and betrayed by those whom he needed the most when he needed them the most. Remember? Which means if that happens to you, and it very well might happen to you, not only can your can Christ sympathize with you as your high priest, but that he can also help you respond in the way that he responded, which was with patience and forgiveness and love. And although I'm not particularly great at living this out personally, I love Colossians 3, 12 through 14. It's the essence of redemptive relationships, exactly what Charles just read. Listen to what he says. Paul says, put on, therefore. Here's a redemptive relationship. Here it is. Here's the, the pillar text for it. Put on, therefore, as the chosen of God, holy and beloved, a heart, literally, the bowels of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. If anyone has a complaint, just as, just as even as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And over all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. That is what we are after in a redemptive relationship, and that is supernatural. Which brings us to the third feature of redemptive relationships. The third feature of redemptive relationships, number three, the instrument of redemptive relationships. The instrument of redemptive relationships. Which is, no surprise, the sacred text of Holy Scripture. Right? Truth and literal Bible verses are the currency of exchange that make redemptive relationships work. Truth and literal Bible verses are the CPR that breathe life into one another's soul. Truth. And of course, what I'm not saying is, don't be good listeners. I'm not saying be all preachy and weird. Right? I'm not saying that we just callously quote Bible verses when people are in pain. 
because sometimes we do need to be silent and be a shoulder to cry on because you remember that Job's friends wisely didn't say a word for seven whole days when they saw their friend in affliction, right? I'm just saying, I'm just saying, sooner or later, the shoulder must give way to a sermon. I'm just saying that sooner or later, to really help hurting people, you need something more than the platitudes and cliches of a Hallmark card. You need something more profound, more deep, more stable, more powerful, more hope-giving, more heart-thrilling, more sustaining, more foundational than just good advice to truly offer hope to hurting people, we must dip our fingers in the balm of Holy Scripture and wisely apply it to one another's souls. Because consider, consider just how the Bible for a moment speaks about the Bible. Have you ever considered how the Bible talks about the Bible? Psalm 19 says the word of God is more precious than gold than much fine gold and sweeter also than honey. Psalm 119 says that the word of God is a lamp for my feet and a light for my path. Hebrews 4.12 says that the word of God is living. It is alive and active and, get this, sharper than any two-edged sword which pierces down into the very soul. Think about it. Honey and gold and light and a sword that slices open the human heart. What does that mean? It means that the word of God is not just a piece of literature. It is the most lethal instrument of change known to man. Which means the word of God contains not only the diagnosis, but the cure for any dilemma and issue of the human heart. I mean, you believe that, right? Must believe that. The word of God must be central in our relationships to one another. Because consider, for instance, Psalm 1. In fact, I want you to turn there, Psalm 1. Psalm 1, which if you know about the Psalms, you know that Psalm 1 opens with comparing and contrasting the righteous with the wicked, right? And yet what's really interesting about the Psalm is that central to the difference between the righteous and the wicked is the role of the Word of God, the role, the place of the Word of God. Psalm 1, and I want you to notice what the writer says about God's word and what it produces in our lives. Notice first verse 1. Ashrei ha'ish, he says. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. What is he saying? He's saying that the most happy, joyful people in the world stay out of sin's way. Okay? Verse 2. Instead of that, in fact, the exact opposite of that, the blessed person, the happy person, notice, literally, chefetz, his pleasure, his delight is in the law of Yahweh, and on his law, here it is, he meditates day and night. Who is that? That's you. That's, that's me, meditating, thinking, pondering, contemplating, savoring, clinging to Holy Scripture all day long. You've heard me say this before. What this is, is that IV drip line relationship and connection of dependence upon the Word of God as you go throughout your day. This isn't some hoop jumping 
box-checking duty that magically makes God happy with you. No! Is that it's that we cling to God's word, not just as something that's true, but as a means of survival. Because should we do that? Should we have that IV drip line meditation on God's word throughout the day? What, what happens? What happens to our lives? What is the result of that? Verse 3. The one who meditates day and night will be like a tree. Firmly planted on streams of water which yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither and whatever he does, he prospers. What's my point? What does any of that have to do with redemptive relationships? It has everything to do with redemptive relationships because, because if that's what the word of God is and does, then isn't the word of God the most valuable thing you can give to one another in your relationships? It is. I mean, what are redemptive relationships except to help one another have the law of Yahweh be our joy and delight? What are redemptive relationships except to help one another be trees, trees, firmly planted trees on streams of water, green and flourishing and bearing fruit for the glory of the Father. I mean, don't you see your job, your ministry in life is to water trees. The church is an arboretum of souls. And what you are are ecclesiological arborists. Arborists who water one another with the water of the word of God. I water you, you water me, and we become a forest of fruit-bearing trees bringing glory to Jesus Christ. That's what's missing in local churches, oftentimes. Listen to what Paul says in Colossians 3.16. This is, the, this is Paul's version of Psalm 1. He says, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. What is that? That is redemptive relationships at the center of which is the life-giving, hope-supplying power of the word through your mouths to my soul. What that means then, by way of application, is that you become an exceptionally good listener, an exceptionally good question asker. If you want to learn how to do this well, we, we need to grow in learning how to listen, learning how to ask really good questions, hanging on every single word they say. And when we see a moment, a neon lights moment, in which truth can and should must come to bear, we just supply a reminder of what God has said and seek to encourage one another's souls. It's not super complex. It's hard, but it's not complex. So what this means then, what this means then, this is very important, is that the most loving service that you can render to another human being, seriously, is to have your own soul drenched by the scriptures. It is. To give yourself to daily meditation upon the sacred text. I mean, spending time in God's word is not just for our own personal devotional 
delight. It is a church health issue. Because the word is the instrument. Which brings us finally, number four, the fourth final feature of redemptive relationships. Number four, the hindrances to redemptive relationships. The hindrances to redemptive relationships. Because just like arteries can be blocked and freeways can be jammed, redemptive relationships can also be blocked and jammed, right? And, and again, we know this. We know what it's like to have fissures in our relationships, challenges in our relationships. We know the kinds of contributing factors that lead to tension and even the severing of relationships in our lives. We know that because we have them. And yet, redemptive relationships have their own particular kind of hindrances, don't they? And not asking for out loud response or a show of hands, but what could you possibly foresee being hindrances to redemptive relationships in a local church? Well, as, as we try to move forward and progress in health and do this kind of church life dynamic stuff that really causes health and growth in the body, what could you foresee as possible hindrances to redemptive relationships? Because I can think of six. There are more. Here are six. I mean, these are going to go really fast. Six deadly hindrances to redemptive relationships. Number one, spiritual death. Spiritual death is the biggest hindrance in redemptive relationships because you can't have fellowship with somebody who's spiritually dead, right? In other words, what I'm saying is that this is someone who doesn't actually belong to Jesus Christ. This is what Paul meant in 2 Corinthians 6, 14 and 15. Remember when he said, do not be bound together with unbelievers? For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What harmony has Christ with Belial? What has a believer in common with an unbeliever? What I'm about to say is going to be really hard for me to say, for you to hear, perhaps, but with regard to redemptive relationships, and everybody's story is different, right? So I'm not, it's not a one-size-fits-all thing, but if all you have in your past are burnt bridges and bitter complaints and ruined relationships and a bunch of grudges at churches at which you got burned, if that's your story, your unanimous story of your past then you need to hold out the possibility that it might not be them. It might actually be you. And you might not actually be a believer. Number two, second hindrance, secret sin. Secret, life-dominating sin puts a vampire stake in the heart of redemptive relationships. It just kills it. Because do you know what secret, life-dominating sins do? People who have them tend to think that they only affect them. But you see, what they can't see, what other people can see, is that secret sins make us detached, awkward, distant, bitter, critical, suspicious, weird, cynical, and unwilling to be vulnerable and let anybody in. And if that's where you are today, if, if you have something like that that could be described as a secret life-dominating sin in your life, I just want to remind you, remind you of the sin-powering, sin-severing power of the death of Jesus Christ. You need to remember that. That there was hope for you. 
that the death of Christ didn't merely just cancel forgiveness, cancel your sin, and provide forgiveness for the sins of the past, but that his death provides all the power you need to overcome sin and temptation in the present. There is hope for you. And that in his word is all the power and pleasure you need to put sin to death and put his glory on display. The third hindrance to redemptive relationships, number three, bitterness. Bitterness, because we know that bitterness poisons the communal water hole of the local church, doesn't it? It totally does. I mean, you understand, being bitter is not just a private thing that affects you only. Not at all. It cannot be contained to only one person. Listen to Hebrews 12, 15. It says, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble. And by it, notice, many be defiled. One bitter person defiles many defiles them. Oh, I beg you, do not, and I'm talking to myself, do not let your hurt and anger calcify into bitterness because you know that the bitter heart must spew its poison in the form of slander and gossip, and you know that slander and gossip in the church is more dangerous than a gunman. Number four. Fourth hindrance is pride. Pride, spiritual pride, which takes many forms, cloaks itself in many ways. Usually it takes the form of refusing to be vulnerable. And the flip side of that is being especially critical. At any church, there's plenty to be critical about. I, I get that. But I've tried to figure out, like, okay, why? What, why, what, what happens here? What, what is it that drives this? And it's hard to say. Maybe it's that we feel ashamed, embarrassed, and we know that who we really are isn't who we've made ourselves out to be. And so... In response, in our pride, we overcompensate and turn it around and flip it inside out and we, pre we pretend that we either have no real struggles or we pretend that what we struggle with isn't anybody's business. But it is. It is other people's business. And, and you need to make it their business by honest, vulnerable, Confession, asking for help. I mean, James 5.16, I didn't, I'm not saying that. It's not, that's not my idea. James 5.16 tells us, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Because at the end of the day, my holiness is your business and your holiness is my business. Number five, emptiness of the word. Emptiness of the word, basically all that means is that you cannot water others with the word if you yourself have not been watered. Again, being in God's word is a church health issue. It's not about, like if you're wondering, like, why do you harp on this all the time? Every sermon you talk about being in God's word. It's, it's not because I'm, I'm interested in, well, how many times did you do it? That's, that's not what I'm interested in. I'm, I'm interested in you thriving in Christ because you understand that all a redemptive relationship is, when we're doing it right, is the supernaturally organic overflow of our own abiding in Christ. If you are rich in God's word, you will make other people rich with truth also. Number six. Number six, sixth hindrance, which I'm calling ecclesiological absence. Ecclesiological absence, which is just a fancy way of saying for people in America, oftentimes the Sunday gathering of the redeemed is just not that big of a deal. 
just optional. Again, I said this last week and maybe even the week before, <laughs> but it's not. It's not optional. And again, I, and I know I don't need to qualify, needlessly qualify things. Again, no one's concern is merely church attendance, right? And that's, you know, the, 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 I am not the attendance police. I'm not interested in that. I'm just saying, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider carefully how to stir one another up to love and good deeds. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves, even as is the habit of some, but all the more exhorting one another, even as you see the day approaching. That is why Sunday morning is such a huge, massive deal, because what we're doing here is taking ownership of one another's souls. My spiritual growth is your priority. Your growth is my priority. That is a redemptive relationship, and that's it. That that's a theology of relationships and what they should be in the local church. And the best way to describe those relationships is redemptive relationships. And all they are is humble, honest, vulnerable, people in need of change, helping people in need of change with the word. Because that right there is how we become a healthy church that changes the world. And so let's pray. Let's pray that we can become that kind of church. Oh Lord, we give you thanks for your church. It is a network, it's a body, a synergy of souls. Oh Lord, we don't grow, we don't get healthy without one another. Thank you, Lord, that you have designed, you have designed the church to be a synergy of souls connected together by common faith in Christ. And Lord, you have called us to be connected, to be explicitly, intentionally connected with one another. Oh Lord, help us, help us to do church well, help us to do ecclesiology well. Lord, you walk among the lampstands of your church. You care deeply what happens inside those churches. And so Lord, we ask for your supernatural help and power that we would do church in a way that puts your glory on open display. In Christ's name.